You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage this morning is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thanks, Taylor. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. My name is Joey. It is an honor to be able to come up here and be back in the pulpit and preaching this week. Uh, we are in the book of John, so if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn there with me. As you can tell, I got the sniffles, so you can pray for me. You can say a little, you can throw up a little prayer for me that my voice makes it this entire time. And faith, I know it will, all right? So there's a few things that's guaranteed in life. You will age. You will have to pay your taxes. History will repeat itself. And you will suffer. Welcome to church. Great Sunday, everybody. Glad you're here. Look, uh, everyone is going to suffer. Some forms of suffering are more severe, but suffering is relative to you and your experience. What is painful for you might not be painful for somebody else. What is painful for someone else shouldn't minimize the pain that you're experiencing. So you might be here today. And you might be experiencing pain in your marriage, suffering in your marriage, suffering in parenting, in your singleness, in your employment or unemployment or disillusionment with life and friends and relationships or suffering in illness or just in a midlife crisis. But everyone suffers in some way. Everybody suffers. And so what does Jesus have to say about suffering? It's a huge part of our life. We don't want to let it go to waste. It doesn't matter. And it's purposeful. So what does Jesus have to say about it? And that's our exploration for today. We're in John 11, and we're going to study Jesus and the problem of suffering and answer three questions. How does suffering take place? Why does suffering take place? And so what? What's our response? How will we respond to suffering? How it takes place and why it takes place? So that's our journey together for this morning. Before we do that, though, Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, ask the Father to be with us. Father, we come to you now. 
We praise you for loving us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. Before the foundations of the world, you set your love and knowledge on us and chose us and loved us that way. We're thankful, Father, that you've covenanted to us, that you've made a promise to us, that you will be with us, and you'll never break that promise. We thank you, Jesus, for being our elder brother, our redeemer, our savior, who walks with us through our suffering, who knows what it's like to be tempted and tried, just as we have been, yet without sin. We're thankful that you're our great high priest and advocate, who's at the right hand of the Father, who stands as our innocence, as our plea before him, that we are clean and blameless. We're thankful for you, Spirit, Holy Spirit, today, who indwells us as a guide and a counselor and a friend. We are never alone, and even to the end of the age, we are never alone. So we thank you, praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for being a presence in our life, the truth that anchors us. And we ask, God, that you teach us today from your word, that you'd help us to suffer well and suffer faithfully and glean everything that we're supposed to from it. In your name we pray, amen. So Jesus, and the problem of suffering, how does suffering take place? Does Satan cause suffering? Yes. Does sin cause suffering? Yes. Do people, other people in your lives, cause you suffering? Yes. Yes, to all of that. But ultimately, God. You can use whatever you, word you'd like to use for it, God. Ordain suffering, God. Appoint suffering, God. Allow suffering, God. Permit suffering, God. Provide suffering. But what you must biblically acknowledge is that behind all the variables and behind all the forces at play, there is God who ultimately has a plan for our suffering. So I want to prove this to you, walking through the story, just very quickly. I want to point this out by looking at Jesus' delay in going to Lazarus, just real quickly. In verse 3, we see what? Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. That message gets to him, and it likely takes one day to get to Lazarus. And we know from later on in the story that Jesus knows, he taps into his divine omniscience, and he knows that in that first day, Lazarus has already passed. That's happened the first day. A message comes to him, Lazarus has already passed. That's going to happen, okay, bear with me. Verse 6, Jesus waits two days. He delays coming two days. And then verse 7, he then begins his journey to Judea, which is going to take one day. So you can see Jesus purposefully delays his coming four days. And all in all, Jesus knows Lazarus is going to pass. He waits for that message to come to him and delays his arrival and then waits an extra day. It's all purposeful. I hope you see that. It's all purposeful. It's hard to see it any other way. Now, Jesus didn't cause the sickness. Jesus didn't kill Lazarus, but he did not intervene. Jesus, who is the revelation of God, we want, if you want to know who God is, you look no further than Jesus. Jesus orchestrated this event of great sadness and suffering. So what we can conclude from Jesus' decision here is ultimately, he's not the agent of suffering, but he is the permitter, he is the provider of it. Now theologians refer to this as God's providence. God does not sin, he's not responsible for evil, but he does have a plan that includes evil and suffering since before time began. He's presiding over all the events of human history and human future and human present that's going to achieve that plan. So let me explain it this way. Let me say it this way. God 
personally orchestrates all things to achieve his desired outcome. So he uses natural law, things like gravity and thermodynamics and biological processes and the conscience and moral codes, social codes, psychological responses. He uses all the things that are embedded in the natural order, natural law, and he uses our free agency, our free decisions as well, to guide the events of past, present, and future to his desired outcome. So Wayne Grudem is a theologian, and here's how he explains it. Let me get him involved here. He says this, The divine cause of each event works as an invisible, behind-the-scenes directing cause, and therefore could be called the primary cause, that it plans and initiates everything that happens. But the creative things, the creative thing brings about actions in ways consistent with the creature's properties, ways that can be often described by us or by professional scientists who carefully observe the processes. These creaturely factors and properties can therefore be called the secondary causes of everything that happens, even though they are the causes that are evident to us by observation. Foundationally, ultimately, God has a plan behind suffering. He's orchestrating all these events. So suffering can be attributed to God, but God's not held responsible for it. So I know it feels like we're splitting hairs here. Like I know it feels like we're, we're entering into something that's really hard to articulate and maybe is a little bit confusing here. And when it comes to great mysteries like this, where how God's sovereignty and our responsibility and the things that are happening, how they intertwine, I have found it's better to just accept mystery and simply state God is sovereign and we are responsible. God is sovereign over all things, yet we are responsible. And just enter into that mystery and embrace that mystery. There's some questions that will not be answered in our lifetime. This is one of those questions. When we ask this question, we're like grasping for things that we can't really hold. Now, I know this might burst your bubble a little bit, and I'm sorry if it does, but let me ask you a question here. What would you rather have? What would you rather have the reality be that's, that, God is, um, that God is at the mercy of Satan, that God's at the mercy of circumstance, that God's surprised by what's happening and has to all of a sudden change his plan? Or would you rather have a God who is sovereign and therefore governs the events of the past and the present and the future for a purposeful reason? Now I'll say this one thing. If you have more questions about this, in the sermon manuscript that's available online, I have a little footnote with tons of little references for you to dive into. So if you have more questions, you can go ahead and use that resource. It's for you online. But let me wrap up this first point, how suffering takes place. It's according to God's plan. He's the one orchestrating it behind the scenes. It's mysterious. It's hard to understand, but listen here. If you accept mystery and just commit to the fact that God is sovereign over suffering and evil, but he's not responsible for it, here's what that's going to do for you. Here's what I've learned in my life. If you do that, it will enable you to fully appreciate the fullness of the human experience. On one hand, because you know that God is sovereign over evil and suffering, you can trust him. You can cry out to him, and you can, you can lean on him in those times. But also, if you know that we are responsible, that we are involved, you can grieve. When you see injustice, when you see things that break your heart, you can, you can be outraged, and that's appropriate to feel that way because we are responsible. 
So accepting this mystery that God is sovereign, yet we are responsible, allows you to live in the fullness of the human experience, trust God, and be outraged all at the same time without feeling like you're living in a contradiction. The doctrine of God's providence allows you to fully live in both of these experiences. So God is sovereign over all things. That's how suffering takes place. Satan, yes. Us, yes. Sin, yes. But ultimately, God is the great orchestrator. Now, let me be honest about something here. Even with all of this said just now, we should be terrified that Jesus would wait, angry that Jesus would wait, if one thing were called into question, if God wasn't good. Remember, Jesus is God in flesh, the representative of God. We know who God is, how he works by observing Jesus. So in other words, if God was a tyrant, if God wasn't good in everything that he does and purposes, then we, would, then we should be hopeless and everything would seem futile. Imagine being at the mercy of a God who operated according to a whim of instant gratification or impulsive anger. History is full of those kinds of mythological gods. Look at ancient literary accounts of creation, how vile, shallow they are, or the Greco-Roman gods, how abusive and flawed they are. Christianity alone presents a God, the one true God, as a good God, completely good. All his motivations, all his reasonings for everything he does are perfectly good. So if God is the great orchestrator behind the events of our life, including suffering, we have to ask, what possible good could there be in our suffering? What good reason could God possibly have for providing us with these instances and seasons of suffering? There's got to be a good reason for it then if God is good. And so that's what we're at. now going to explore. Why does suffering take place? To answer this question, pay attention to some of the repeated details in the beginning of this story. We have what? A man named Lazarus, the sick man who died. Now, do you know what the name Lazarus means? It means friend of God, literally. So we have here a man who's a friend of God. The sister's message, it comes to Jesus in verse 3. And what, what does that message contain? It says, he whom you love is ill. And then down in verse 5, Mary and Martha, John records something about them. It says in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So the point, it's repeated till it's, till it's almost irritating. Yeah, we, we, like, we get it. Jesus loves these, these people. Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. We get it. Okay, you've said it repeatedly. But then Jesus lets Lazarus die. And we should feel the tension there. We should, we should feel the tension there. Lazarus, it means friend of God. But here's also something really interesting that John, as the author of this, of this gospel, is doing here. He says Lazarus is of Bethany, and that's where he lives, and that's a literal historical truth. But also it's a little bit poetic because Bethany, the word Bethany, literally means house of suffering. So here is the friend of God living in the house of suffering. We're supposed to feel the tension through this story. He loves Martha and Mary, yet delays in coming. So what do we say to this? Why, why is God, through Jesus, revealed through Jesus, allowing this suffering to take place? And the answer is, well, it can't be because he doesn't love them. 
John has made that perfectly clear that Jesus loves these friends. In fact, <clears throat> on the other hand, what if the reason for the suffering is precisely because God loves them? See, we know from John, 1 John chapter 4, it says that God is love which means at the core of God, who he is, everything that's driving him, all his impulses come from a place of love. Think about God's wrath, his anger. That's an extension of his love. You know what somebody loves based on what makes them angry. You know what somebody loves based on what they hate. The, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. God is love. Everything that comes from God comes from his heart of love. The most famous verse in the entire Old Testament is God's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, the Bible is very clear on this one thing. God is love. He is abounding in love. If there's any impulse in him, it says he's slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the answer to our question, why does God allow suffering, is it can't be because he doesn't love us. It must be precisely because he loves us. And Jesus reveals this. This is exactly what John wants to show us in this story. And although it's different language, the idea is here. And that's what I want to show you. So look at verses 3 and 4. We get to see Jesus' motivations for delaying, for causing this great sadness and suffering. It says this. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness, it does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's for the glory of God and for the glory of the Son. At dinner time with Harper, our three-year-old, we've been doing catechism, a little question and answer book that we have at dinner time. And so one of the questions this last week was, why did God create everything? Why did God create you, Harper? And the answer, of course, in the catechism is for his glory. Everything is for his glory. And so here's what I expect Harper to do, maybe like in two years from now or you know, something. I expect her to get theological and say something like that. If God is all-sufficient, if, if God needs no thing and nobody, then why, why, do, why do I exist for his glory? If I stop praising him, is he less glorious? If I stop living for him, does he lose his glory? How does that make sense? How does that up? And the answer to that question is God's glory, it's not like a bank account that can increase or decrease. C.S. Lewis says this, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. God's glory is his very essence. It's who he is in his radiance. It's his holiness, it's his goodness, it's his beauty on display. But although it doesn't increase and doesn't de decrease, it can be acknowledged or disregarded. It can be seen or unseen. So when we read that Jesus' reason behind suffering is God's glory and the Son's glory, we should take that to mean the revelation of who God truly is, the revelation of the Son, who the Son really is, the presentation, the disclosure of these two. This illness is for the glory of God and the glory of the Son. The point is that suffering reveals God in ways that nothing else does. C.S. Lewis, again, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's for his glory, it's for the Son's glory, so that he might be truly seen, revealed. But remember, okay, one little bit here. God's glory is seen or unseen, acknowledged or not acknowledged. The purpose of suffering is to reveal God to you, to me. It's a personal experience. So suffering, it creates the possibility of God's glory, not just revealed, but beheld by us. So the purpose of suffering is one idea with two aspects, God's glory and our good. So let's unpack this a little more in the story, 11 through 15. You'll see this. Jesus explains this. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. They thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Now notice what Jesus says here. Why is he orchestrating this whole thing? Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us now go to him. Wait, I thought suffering is for the glory of God and the glory of the Son. Here he's saying it's for your sake. I'm so glad this is happening because it's for you and your benefit. What's going on here? Which is it? Is it God's glory or our good? Jesus isn't double-minded. He doesn't have two different contrary reasons for our suffering. This purpose of suffering, it's a multifaceted, singular idea. God's glory, our good. So how is God and the Son glorified? By our realization of Him. And who benefits from that realization of God's glory, who He truly is? We are the benefactors. So this is why the Westminster Confession says, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All of life, all of life, is for the glory of God and our enjoyment of Him, but suffering particularly makes that heady theological statement a personal reality. So our suffering, it's not because God doesn't love us, it's because He loves us, because through our suffering, He's inviting us into deeper fellowship with Him. He's inviting us into new horizons to see who He really is, deeper friendship, deeper union with Father, Son, Spirit, the glory of God revealed to your soul so you can bask in the radiance of his goodness and beauty. That's the purpose of suffering. It's not accidental. It's precise. Now, one of my favorite movies of all time is Goodwill Hunting. All right. It's one of the movies I could watch every single week. There's this great scene between Robin Williams and Matt Damon. Robin Williams plays this uh, older, wiser, sage therapist. And, you know, of course, Matt Damon plays Will, the the, uh, the genius, but also the troubled genius. And after this scene where uh, <clears throat> Will just demoralizes the therapist, Sean, played by Robin Williams, Robin Williams' character is up all night, totally troubled by what he said. Then he said, about halfway through the night, I realized something, and I fell into a deep sleep. I'm going to read you what he said to, uh, to Will here after I refresh myself. All right. He says this, You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea of what you're talking about. Never been out of Boston. 
If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, his life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, the whole works, right? <clears throat> but I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about women, you may be able to tell me your, favorite, your favorites, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. If I asked you about war, you'd probably quote Shakespeare at me once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You never held your best friend in your lap and watched him gasp his final breath, looking to you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with her eyes. I feel like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell. You wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her forever through anything. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something more than yourself. I doubt you ever dare to love anyone that much. The point that he's making there is it's one thing to have a knowledge of something conceptually, to read about it in a book, to hear about it in passing, to have a cognitive and formative relationship with just some idea. It's a whole nother thing to experience that firsthand, experientially grapple with that thing and be integrated with that thing. Suffering does that. It transfers you from one place to the next with Jesus. It causes you to graduate from a place of immaturity where you're just a kid who's read a few books, who knows a few things about God to a person who is at rest in him, trusting him as he's taking you through the furnace of life. And that testing over and over again reveals God is good. God is worth it. He is my father. Jesus is my brother. Jesus is my friend. The spirit is my comforter. God is working to bring us to deeper union with him and free us from these illusions that we live under, that somehow who loves me or what I do or what I have is going to make me happy. Suffering is releasing our grip from that illusion so we can be totally prepared to receive God's love for us instead. So I hope you see here, suffering, it's purposeful. There's a good reason behind it. It is actually a gift because God is doing something there. He's drawing you and bringing you into real relationship with him, not just a theologically abstract one, not, not one that's just based upon what I've heard growing up, but one that actually becomes my lifeline. There's a difference. Now let me ask you this. I know this is a lot <clears throat> to accept and to agree with and to be on board with. So if you struggle to accept it, let me tell you one thing you need to do. Preach the gospel to yourself all of the time. Because here's what the gospel does for you. It reminds you that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God raised you with Christ and made you alive in Christ and seated you with him in the heavenlies. The cross reminds you that while you were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. One might dare, dare die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You hear the truth of the gospel there? God gets down on his knee and pledges his heart to us when we were not marriage material, 
weak, sinful, dead in our transgressions and sin, that's when he married us. And now here's the truth of the gospel. We're not his enemies anymore. He's made us beautiful. We're united to his son now. And so now that we're in him and united with him, is his love going to stop? When his love was real back when we didn't deserve it, now that we're in Christ, is is it going to just go away and be absent? Now that we're suffering, is it just going to dwindle and dissipate? No. No. Romans 8 says, that's why we read read it this morning together, Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all back then when we were unlovely. How will he also not now with him? Now that we're in him, graciously give us all things, meaning provide his everlasting love for us, even when it seems impossible to come through for us. That's why later on in Romans it says, neither death nor life Angels, demons, persecution, sword, famine, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the promise we're given in Romans 8 is that God is using all of these things to conform us into the image of his son. He's making us more like Jesus as we, as we stare into the face of Jesus in our suffering. So if you understand what suffering is achieving for you, then you can actually receive it as a gift. As a gift. I know that's strange to hear, but it's true. Preach the gospel to yourself when you struggle to believe that God is still good because it will remind you he was good then. So he's going to keep being good. Isn't it only logical? Doesn't that only make sense? When we are not with Christ, God loved us. Now that we are in Christ, is his love going to end? By no means. Now, if you're here and you're seeking, maybe some of you are here and you've been divided and you're not sure what you think about Christianity yet, Let me pause you and just invite you to respond to that gospel today, to receive the gift of the cross today. The word gospel, do you know what that means? Like in its literal translation, it means good news. And originally in the ancient times, gospel, euangelion in the Greek, like it was a political word. When kings would invade a land, they would pronounce a gospel, and say, my language, my culture, my ways, my code, it's now going to be imposed upon you. Hooray! What good good news. It was imperialistic. But here's a good king. A king who died for you when we were still weak in, in sin and had nothing to offer him. Here's a good king coming and proclaiming into your life, I want to bring you my ways. I want to bring you my kingdom. I want to bring you into my love. So if you're here and, and you're curious about Christianity, you're not going to find a better love than this. You're not going to find a better king than this, a king who's offering you actual good news. And without this king, let me just tell you, suffering in life, it's just going to be a struggle for you. There's two options on the table for you apart from Jesus when it comes to suffering. First, suffering, it's just a waste and a hassle. Because if we're living to be happy, if we're living for the good times, then what purpose does suffering have for you? It's just a disruption. It's a speed bump. And so let me ask you a question if you're apart from Jesus, if you're curious about him. If there's no meaning and purpose of suffering in your life, are you really willing to let massive chunks of your life go to waste? Because suffering, you cannot avoid it. Suffering is inevitable. And Jesus and Jesus alone provides real meaning and real purpose for your suffering. So you have a choice before you today. You can let it go to waste and just let it be a disruption as you try to get back into the the good lane. 
or you can receive. You can receive the kingdom. Here's the other option today, okay? <clears throat> the other option is the way of current like pop psychology, which will say yeah, suffering and time, hard times makes you a better version of yourself. You know, and, and here's the problem with that, and that might be true. You might get a little wiser. You might get maybe even a little bit more empathetic. But ultimately what's happening with that kind of ideology is you're becoming just more self-centered because suffering becomes a badge of honor. That's like, look at me, how great I've done. Look at me, how much I've overcome. And life becomes about me and my improvement and my self-actualization and realization. In the way of Jesus, if you follow him, suffering is not about self-realization realization, and self-actualization. It's about self-forgetfulness. It's about dying to self and becoming a self-giving person where you live no longer dominated by the need to have other people like you, have other people love you, have stuff, have achievement, those kinds of things, be improving. You don't need those things to be alive anymore. In the way of Jesus, all you need is his, is his love for you. And then what happens is you become a conduit of that love to other people, constantly overflowing with God's abundant love. That's what's going to happen if you lean into this and walk in the way of Jesus. So come to Jesus, his yoke, it's easy, his burden is light. And suffering, if, if you come to Jesus, it's not a contest anymore, it's a furnace that frees you from yourself. So that's the, that's the, the how and the why of suffering. And I've tried to hold off some application because now we're going to get into application. So now we're asking the question, so what? How do we respond? And remember, I started today by saying there's one thing, there's several things, but certainly one thing that's guaranteed in life. You will suffer, I will suffer. But here's one thing that's not guaranteed that you'll make the most of it. It's really, really important to know how to walk with God through suffering so it doesn't go to waste. So it does its intended work within you. So let's go back to verses 7 through 9. It says this. John writes this. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea, Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you there in Judea. Then you're going to go there again? Jesus answers, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. Now, so <clears throat> Jesus is using um, an illustration in his time. Of course, in the late spring, summertime in the ancient Palestine, you have 12 hours of daylight. That's when you get your work done. And when night comes, it's not like today, there's no electricity. When night comes, work stops. You can't do anything productive in that time. And so you work hard with urgency during those 12 hours because those are all that you have to get anything done. When night comes, time's out. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this metaphor several times, and it always refers to the work that Jesus has to do before he dies. When he dies on the cross, that's nighttime, sun's down, but while the light is still out, he has things to do. And so he's telling his disciples, we got to go because we have tasks <clears throat> still to complete, things still to do while I'm alive. And so he has the sense of urgency to go and do the tasks that the Father has given him. He says, you can do this as long as you see the light of the world. Pay attention to that. He said that. You can, you, as long as you're in the light, as long as you're seeing the light of the world, you will not stumble. That's why he's saying, come on, let's go to Judea. But now look at verse 10. And there's a slight change of wording. And it's important. He says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
Jesus has switched the timeline. He was just talking about the present time. Now he's talking about post-cross, after his death, when the night comes. And the disciples, they're going to live in the night. Their best friend, their teacher is going to die. He's going to be killed. They're going to be left alone. They're going to enter into the night. But he says, if the light is in you, remember they saw the light. Now he's saying, if the light is in you, you can walk in the night and not stumble. But if the light's not in you, you will walk in the night and you will stumble. So as long as the light is within us, we can walk in the night and not stumble. So the darkness came. <clears throat> the darkness came. Jesus did die. And they walked in the night, didn't they? They walked in the night. They were poor the rest of their life. They were marginalized. The disciples were. They were misunderstood. They were killed. They walked in the night, but the light of the world they saw with their eyes was now living inside of them, and so they would not stumble. And friends, this is our same reality. We still walk in the night. We're waiting for the day to dawn, for the light to invade this present darkness, but we are aliens and strangers, but you do not need to stumble in your suffering if you have the light of the world living within you. So here's what I'll say. Lean into your suffering because you have been equipped with an incredible resource living within you that walks with you through the furnace and walks with you through the night, the, the suffering. You're not alone. You have a power that can help you persevere and gain everything you're meant to gain through your suffering. And I'll just say this one last thing before making some quick application here. Thomas Doubting Thomas gets a bad rap, but he becomes a model for this light. I'm going to lean into it. I'm just going to embrace all that Jesus has for me in this time of suffering because he's in me. Look what Thomas says in verse 16. After he hears, we're going to go to Judea and we're going to die, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. He's talking like a revolutionary. He's thinking politically here, like, yeah, let's go follow our Messiah to the death. But John, you know, he's symbolic in his writing. And Thomas is speaking better than he knows. So what John wants us to see as like a metaphor or a symbol is this is how we should walk with Jesus in the night, in our trials and our sufferings. We will just go with him to the very bitter end because even if I have to lose everything, lose my life, I lose nothing at all. The light of the world lives within me. That's why C.S. Lewis says, for those of us who are in Jesus, walking with him, this life is the closest to hell we will ever get. But apart from Jesus, this is the closest to heaven you will ever get. So walk with Jesus through your suffering. Like Thomas, let's just go for it. Let's not waste it. Let's lean into it. Think about this with me. This is something I think about all the time. God, if he wanted to just snap his finger and change our circumstance in the blink of an eye, he could do it. God could snap his finger and change everything, relieve any suffering that we're having at any moment. But he doesn't, which means he's intending for us to walk through it. There's something there. So I want to end by giving four ways to lean into suffering, okay? Four ways to lean into suffering. First, get it. You saw, now you see them all, but it's okay. You'll figure it out. Get away from screens. Get away from screens. Do you know why we scroll? Do you know why we binge watch TV and Netflix? It's not because we're bored. It's not because we're tired. That might be like the superficial reason. Blaise Pascal, 17th century philosopher and Christian, said, all of humanity's problems, 
All humanity's problems stem from man's inability to be alone in his chamber. We don't like to be alone with our own thoughts. They scare us. They frighten us. All of our sin, our mistakes, our baggage, our trauma, our suffering, we don't want to face those things in our minds, and so we distract and preoccupy ourselves. So when you're in times of suffering, the worst thing to do is to veg out and numb yourself because you're desensitizing yourself to what the Spirit of God is trying to teach you as you walk through that time of suffering. It's really important you don't tap out when you're suffering. And if you do, you do yourself a massive disservice because there are great things at play. This is why James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its course so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know what sounds terrible? Suffering a lot and remaining immature. Suffering a lot and remaining foolish. Jesus' desire for us is to suffer and suffer well and glean everything we can from it as we walk with him through it. Two, get away from screens and get to the secret place. The secret place. There's no better time to meet with God than when you're suffering. So get alone with him. And here's what's going to happen when you get alone with him in silence and solitude and scripture and in prayer. Here's what's going to happen. Your sadness and grief is going to rise to the surface of your consciousness. Remember, you're away from screens, no more preoccupation, so you're alone with your own thoughts, and they're going to rise to the surface of your consciousness. And you know what your job is now to do? To call upon God's truth. To match your hurts, to match your wounds, to match your fears, your pain with God's promises, God's character, the words of Jesus, his words of life. You know, Jesus did this exact thing. This is Jesus' model. It's not something we're making up. Look at John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 14. This is after Herod killed his cousin, his friend, John the Baptist. Look what, how Jesus responds. Matthew 14, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came, took the body, and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place, by himself. When Jesus was sad, and certainly he's sad, he went to the secret place by himself to meet with the Father and receive his comfort. Can you imagine if we didn't do this? If we didn't go to the secret place in our suffering, we would struggle. We need to digest the gospel, read God's promises, remind ourselves of his love for us when we're suffering. Third, get together with your community. When you're suffering. Suffering, it's not a time to retreat. It's a time to make yourself available. Why? Why is that? Because you're weak. Because <clears throat> I'm weak when we're suffering. And we need others to be strong for us when we are weak. When you're suffering, you're like telling yourself all the right things, all the pad answers, all the cliches. God is good. His promises. He won't leave us. But look, like that, every single thought is matched by like 10 different doubts in your mind. Yes, spend time with the Father alone. Yes, get away from screens, but now go into community because you need to hear those words of life from other people because they're not in your own head. And you might actually believe what they have to say because they've suffered, and they're not so lost in the sauce like you are, and they can speak clearly into your situation with God's promises and God's truth. Get in the community. Let me ask you this thought experiment, okay? Don't answer out loud, please. But 
I'm going to give you five seconds right now to think about the top three sermons that have changed your life. Go ahead. Five, sermons that, uh, five seconds, three sermons that have changed your life. Maybe some of you came up with one. I mean, if you're super theological, maybe you had all three, but maybe it took the whole five seconds. Now, I'm going to give you five seconds to t- think about the top three people who have changed your life. And the point is, that's w- way easier. Why is that? Because people matter. <laughs> and relationships matter. And words are good, answers are good, but more, what we need to complete that process is we need community. That's what's actually changed our life more than anything. We need one another. Lastly, fourthly, how to lean into suffering, make the most of suffering, get away from screens, get alone with the Father, get with community, and go forward in obedience. Go forward in obedience. You're going to want to tap out. You're going to be tempted to tap out. And you're going to think things like, why does this even matter? What's the point of this? Is God even real? Does any of this matter at all? Everything's futile. You're going to get hopeless in your mind. Keep going. What God is doing in your suffering is he's breaking you of those emotional attachments that you have that, think, that you think are going to make you happy. What you do what you have, and who loves you. Like suffering tends to just dissolve those things or make you disillusioned with those things. And what he's trying to do is free you from this false self, this idea of yourself that is defined by those things to make you into your true self, someone conformed after the image of Jesus. It's this deep, profound, transformative process that's happening in our suffering, but you don't know what's happening. You don't know that's taking place under your skin. So you have to walk forward and keep going when you're suffering, even when it doesn't make sense, and just do it in the credit of trust in God. You know, parenting will teach you this more than anything. Harper, when she like wants to have ice cream for breakfast, or this morning, like she has a necklace and she wants to wear it backwards because she thinks that having like the, the extra dangly part is cool and it's not right at all. I'm trying to, it's like, how, how can I explain that to a three-year-old in a way that makes sense? It's not going to happen. So oftentimes what Rebecca and I find ourselves saying is, just trust mom. Just trust. Do you trust us? Do you trust that, that we, we can't explain it? I know it's not going to make sense. Just trust us that we're good, that we know what we're doing. Like, <laughs> that's my daughter and me. And then there's God in me. <laughs> and when we're suffering, we're like that little kid that just wants an explanation for everything and wants to make sense of everything. And... Harper won't understand what I'm saying. She doesn't have the categories of mind to understand, to possibly apprehend what I'm trying to say. It's what makes us think that we're going to understand what God would have to say. If you were to explain it, we wouldn't be able to understand it, or we wouldn't even be able to bear it. So it has to be walking forward in faith without explanation. A deep, transformative work is at play, but you're not ready to hear it. You're not ready for the reason why. You're not ready to see and understand what what really is the ultimate reason behind this. You just have to trust that he has a good reason for it. So God is at work in your suffering. Do not tap out. There's this uh, ancient thinker called Teresa of Avila who famously said, God, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. And the point is exaggerated but it's true. This is how God treats his friends. 
He calls and provides for them suffering, this great furnace in life. And this is how we come into deeper friendship with him. There's also a proverb in the book of Proverbs that says that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And God, as your nearest and dearest friend, sometimes deals that wound, gives that wound, maims us for a time. It's better than the kisses of an enemy because of what he's up to. And remember, lastly, Lazarus means what? Friend of God. And where was he living? In the house of suffering. So here's the question I'll leave you with. All right, we're closing right now. Here's the question I'll leave you with. Is friendship with God worth it? This is how he treats his friends. Is it worth it to you to be brought into deeper union with Jesus? Are you willing to learn, lean into your sufferings so you can graduate to deeper and deeper and deeper waters with God? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we... Uh, all too often distract ourselves and tap out and fail to get on board with what you're doing in our suffering, even though you are good and you have good reason behind it. God, increase our faith and help us to believe that even when we can't see it or make sense of it or would choose anything else in the world than what we're going through at that moment, that you must have good reason for it. Like a father who talks to his child and just says, trust me, and God, help us to trust you. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.